This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. Now, Sudan is in the midst of an intense civil war. And to help us unpack the latest developments, I speak to Nicholas Barrio, reporter from the Wall Street Journal, about how the events have been unfolding. A very good morning, Nicholas. Right, give us some context behind this armed conflict that's been engulfing Sudan. Yeah, so uh, this conflict uh, erupted uh, in April, mid-April, and it happened after weeks of of growing tensions between the two top generals. Uh, that's uh, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Bulhan, who is the commander of Sudan's military and its de facto leader, and then Lieutenant General Mohamed Dagaro, the commander of the Rapid Response Forces, and who is currently his deputy. So these two generals had really been bickering, one, on how to integrate this uh, strong militia into the army, and then two, how to hand over power to civilian, uh, a civilian administration. So after all this, then we saw this eruption. What are they bickering about? What do they disagree about? So the main issue of their disagreement was on how to integrate uh, this uh, militia group that is commanded by General Dagaro. So this is a very strong militia. Uh, It has its origins uh, from the 2000s because it had been used by the former president, Omar al-Bashir, to put down a rebellion in the fall. So at some point, with uh, the events of uh, toppling al-Bashir, uh, the military wanted to have this militia integrated within the army and which didn't go down very well with its commanders. Why is it that the integration was so difficult to go down? Were there big differences in governing the country, in, in organizing themselves? What were the fundamental differences between the militia and the existing military then? Oh, yes. So, so the militia had its complete command structure it had uh, different uh, salaries. Most of its commanders are not uh, trained military personnel, so they had their ranks. So integration into the army meant that they had to lose all that. And there were also fears that some of them would have to lose some ranks and some of them would have to give up, give up their command positions. And most importantly, this militia has strong business enterprises, uh, especially in the mining industry. So all those things into play really raised some uh, fears. What separates these two generals really is just a grasp for power. There is nothing philosophically different between both of them. They don't have very different views towards governing the country. It's just a power struggle then, essentially. In, 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 I think uh, ideologically they're also a bit different because while, for instance, General Ardbrahan is... Uh, a formerly trained military officer who even got trained, who graduated from a military academy in Sudan and got training in Egypt. Uh, General Daga doesn't have formal training through the military, so that uh, he has his background as a militia leader and then later as a mercenary. So that uh, draws a big distinction between the two. They also have foreign backers uh, who are different. Yeah, we're going to talk about the foreign backers later. I just want to give us a sense about the history of Sudan, because 
This isn't the first time it's had conflict before. We've had the issue about the secession of South Sudan. You were mentioning just now about former President Omar Bashir. You know, give us some history about how the tumultuous conflicts happening in Sudan in the past two, three decades. Yeah, so there are traditional, I think, dating from the 1960s, 70s, there was a big, uh, a lot of contradictions, uh, mainly uh, between the predominantly Christian South Sudan and then the predominantly Muslim North Sudan, which led to really decades of civil wars. So that was resolved in 2011 after, uh, which came with the secession of South Sudan. But then, there was also another rebellion um, along Sudan's border with the Central African Republic and Chad. And this time that's what gave rise to General Dagalo because in this particular conf uh, conflict, African tribes which felt were being marginalized decided to take up arms and uh, Al-Bashir's government reacted by creating an Arab militia to put down this rebellion. So the story is long, but some people got indicted, almost um, a quarter, more than a quarter million of people are killed, more, nearly three million people were uprooted. So Sudan has really had a lot of upheavals since independence. It's had a very violent history. And, and for many here in Malaysia, you know, our knowledge of Sudan is somewhat limited to uh, the investments done by our oil and gas uh, national company, Petronas, right? How rich the natural resources of Sudan are. Because we get this perception that if Petronas is investing in Sudan, there must be huge reserves of oil and gas. Is that correct? Oh, yes. So, yeah, Sudan still has substantial oil gas, oil and gas reserves along its border with South Sudan. Although when it broke up, majority of the oil field remained south. But Sudan also still has most of these processing facilities, the pipelines. And then other than oil and gas, they have substantial earth in uh, the mining industry. They have gold. And then they are a major trade artillery for landlocked economies. That's South Sudan, Chad, the Central African Republic. They have like a complete control of uh, the Nile River, which is the main source of uh, fresh water for Egypt. So it's quite, again, a very well endowed country. So it, it is a relatively strategic location where it is in the Horn of Africa, in addition to it having quite a bit of resources. So it does make it a very interesting and strategic country, which then leads to the question about foreign actors. I mean, we talk about these two warring factions that have some intervention or some muddling, right, by foreign actors. Give us a sense about who are all these foreign players that are working behind the scenes and, you know, fueling the respective generals and their armies. Yeah, thanks. So the main players here, um, mainly Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. So Egypt uh, backs Arab Khan because it's where his... Uh, got the training and he comes from an Arab tribe that is has traditionally had links with Egypt. So, and uh, 
throughout all these upheavals, Egypt has been behind Al-Bahan, notably during even the toppling of Al-Bashir and then the toppling of the civilian administration. On the other hand, General Dagal has his backers in the United Arab Emirates, and this stems from his role as a mercenary fighter against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So you have these two powerful Gulf states uh, deeply involved here. So really, it is the neighbors or, you know, the regional players here that are trying to influence the outcome of this war. You don't see the typical understanding of the West or Russia or China all intervening, right? They're out of uh, this whole conflict, isn't it? They're not even involved behind the scenes. The, yeah, but yes, uh, right. I think you can't also uh, remove uh, uh, China, uh, Russia, sorry, and the US in this uh, because uh, Again, there has been this talk of Russia wanting to build a naval base on the Red Sea and uh, Russian mercenaries working with uh, General Dagaro in the far region and the Central African Republic, and then the Americans trying to stop all this. So at a wider level, behind the scenes, you have also these interests that are between the major global powers, but at the regional level, the main players are Egypt and UAE. And that's why for me, there's so much frustration that because of the regional actors here, we can't seem to find any resolution to this conflict, that what we get a sense of is that, you know, powerful forces like the African Union or even the OAS, they've all tried to play their role in mediating peace, and they don't seem to be successful, right, in trying to broker a peace deal. Who is a successful broker then, you think, that could help, you know, break the stalemate? I think we would have somebody who has some bit of more leverage against uh, these two generals. So in this case, again, the main players are going to, you will have somebody who is going to put his foot down and tell one of the generals that if you don't do this, then this awaits you. In this case, you'd need a major player, maybe the US or maybe Egypt or maybe the UAE. So the parties involved now don't have so much leverage on the generals. Which I guess then is the frustrating part. Uh, you know, we, we saw recently a ceasefire was brokered, but that ceasefire was very fragile, only lasted for a couple of days. And after those few days, we went back to full-scale fighting. I mean, these why do the ceasefires in Sudan not work? There's deep-rooted uh, mistrust between these two generals and the fact that they know each other very well. There is, uh, it looks, seems that both of them want to first get uh, battlefield gains, get revived before they can talk, and which is very hard because uh, it doesn't look like either side is making strong gains. All right, we're going to head into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Nicholas Barrio, reporter from the Wall Street Journal about the ongoing Sudan conflict. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Nicholas Barrio, reporter from the Wall Street Journal, on the civil war taking place in Sudan. As we saw recently, foreign nationals being evacuated out in the recent ceasefire. Now, Nicholas, as a journalist, right, how difficult has it been for you to cover this conflict? Uh, for starters, um, the immediately the uh, fighting erupted, there was a big problem with communication. The phone lines are uh, down, the internet, the airspace was closed, so it's not very easy to reach people on the ground, not very easy to 
get a lot of material out of Sudan because of mm -hmm. the communication. And this is down the fact that most of the power lines, the fuel have been severed. So it's really quite challenging. I mean, where are your sources of information about the progress of the war? I mean, who are you speaking to to really get a good sense of whether or not progress of the war is happening? So mainly these are frontline uh, workers, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the aid officials who are providing humanitarian aid, the doctors in hospitals, the nurses, uh, ambulance drivers, and then in a way you also have some government officials, but mainly people who are in emergency operations. You know, we just saw this ceasefire take place completed where we saw you know huge many pictures of many res respective countries evacuating all their respective citizens has that evacuation more or less completed successfully are all the citizens of foreign nationals evacuated already yeah most of uh, the, the, the most of the big powers pulled out uh, their staff the uk the us Turkey, india almost uh, think but although it really didn't go that smoothly some convoys were shot at some uh, diplomats injured some cars hijacked but at least the evacuation is more or less complete now and I guess the biggest casualty in this war are the citizens. I mean, we are seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people amassing at the Sudan borders, trying to leave the country. How serious is the situation there? Quite serious, quite serious. As of today, we are talking of almost 100,000 people that have fled the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, estimates uh, suggest that this number could rise up to almost 800,000. So you have people running into Chad, people running into Egypt, people running into even South Sudan. And uh, yet these are countries that themselves are already so stressed, like Chad itself is having issues with food. That's so there is really a stampede and uh, it's not looking good. Aid organizers, are they on the ground to help the situation? Are they? Is it easy for them to transfer aid over to those in need in Sudan? It's really been so, so impossible because the airspace has been closed since April 15th. So nothing has come in through the airport. The few aid trickling in comes in through Port Sudan. And uh, because of the insecurity, these aid convoys routinely get targeted, get uh, routed, get uh, ransacked. So uh, the last attempt, I think, was from yesterday. The UFP tried to deliver aid to Dafa region, and six of their trucks were intercepted and uh, routed. So it's really a problem. No aid well, is coming in. We can't, we're struggling to get aid in. People are starving. They're struggling to live. People are leaving the country. Is there any sign or perhaps some... Um, peace deal being brokered? Do we get a sense that people are having some behind-the-scenes negotiations? Yes, yes. So the US and Saudi Arabia have been uh, pressing for this, although now it looks like the four front runners of this is South Sudan, regional countries like Kenya. But uh, so far, the attempts have been so unsuccessful. You've seen every day, you see an announcement of a ceasefire, which mm -hmm. breaks almost immediately. But uh, behind the scenes, the US and Saudi Arabia have been doing everything to get these two people agree to a ceasefire. 
what is the key indicator that one side is going to win the war? Are there any strategic locations or towns that if a, if a specific party takes over, it's a, it's a sign that they are likely to be victor in this war? Is that a likely scenario? I don't think so. The fighting is so much concentrated around the capital tomb, and uh, you would say whoever controls the airport, whoever controls the state TV, whoever controls the national radio mm. has an upper hand. Or The problem, though, is while the Sudanese military has had superior uh, power with the air strikes, uh, there is still a heavy presence of uh, this militia, the RSF within Khartoum. You have a figure of almost more than 20,000 soldiers scattered within densely populated uh, neighborhoods mm. with some sort, even if one party is controlling the airport with that strong force still <laughs> reitering in the streets, it's going to be hard to restore some sort of order on normalcy. But it really sounds like both sides have no control over their own respective forces to the point that even they can't get a ceasefire in place, surely they can't even get a peace deal in place because clearly uh, both warring factions can't even control their respective armies. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is more of a problem of uh, um, the rapid support forces uh, who are on the ground and so scattered and very indisciplined. You, we have testimonies from activists, from other people on the ground showing how they loot civilian premises, take over abandoned homes, take away cars from people at checkpoints. So that's really quite some bit of a problem. And the big issue again is what has been failing these ceasefires. Whenever they announce the ceasefire, the SRF try to bring in reinforcements outside the capital into this into the city. And the National Army reacts by ordering airstrikes. So you would say the National Army has a better command structure, I would say, and we can say the at least in control of their forces, but that would not be the same about the SRSF, which is the militia group, which is again down to their history. These are people who really sprouted out of militias in Dafao. They are used to putting out ruckus fighting and violations. So they have a checkered history. You've, you've covered multiple conflicts all around this region. I mean, in your assessment, right, how complex is this conflict compared to all the other, you know, civil wars you see taking place all across Africa, right? How complex is this conflict here? It's being put in a densely population populated city and both sides are heavily armed and then these are strong and large armies. Uh, the SRF is suspected, estimated to have almost 100,000 troops, mm. which is, and uh, the National Army has slightly more than that, has warplanes. So the fact that this combat is in an urban area and very congested, 5 million people in a city, makes it very, very different from other civil conflicts in the region. 
and I guess the question, you know, just building on that point you said, right, who's funding <laughs> these respective armies? I mean, how about you arming them respectively? Yeah. So this is, a, this is a national army. Traditionally, this has been a stable state that uh, gets arms supplies from China, from Russia. They control lucrative trading companies in mining, in agriculture, and uh, so these state funds are uh, received from the sale of minerals, the sale of oil, actually help in portraying these arms. So these are armies that are using weapons long portrayed some time ago, but there is also a raft of aid that has been coming in since the hostilities erupted. You must have read our reporting with the regional powers chipping in, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, all bringing in help logistics and ammunitions on either side of the conflict. Nicholas, let's hope there'll be a speedy resolution to this conflict. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. That was Nicholas Barrio, reporter from the Wall Street Journal, giving us an insight on the current civil war taking place in Sudan. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is a 10 a.m. news bulletin followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.